The Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. We're here with Dr. Deirdre McMahon, teaching professor of English at Drexel University. Her primary focus is 19th century British literature and culture with focus on empires, critical race studies, and material culture. And today we're going to pretty much cover all of that under the umbrella of young adult literature. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. The first thing I wanted to do was start with you. How did you kind of come into your own understanding of like the literature that you would follow? My scholarship? Yeah. I am highly unusual because I always knew that I wanted to be an English professor and most people (laughs) don't. So um, even when I went to college, I I knew that that's Mm. what I wanted. But long before that, I was like, people people can just read. (laughs) Like they can just pick up books and read whatever they want. This is the Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. I read widely and I read lots of different kinds of materials, um, but I never left children's literature. I never left young adult literature. So I think I'm unusual in that regard, too, in that it didn't occur to me that just because I was aging, that that I wouldn't continue to read this material. And I think I'm kind of lucky because there was a growing genre that was specifically for young adult and not just for kids. Hmm. And Robert Cormier is kind of the swing away from um, books that were targeted for kids and kid population and into a young adult genre in American publishing. So his work is like 1970, 1972. Mm -hmm. He is awesome. (laughs) So a lot of people have read um, The Bumblebee Flies Anyway, which is about um, mental illness. And again, in the Hmm. early mid-1970s, because he wrote that after. Um, And The Chocolate War which is about actually about his kids and whether they had to sell chocolate for their school and whether that's a kind of like social engineering Mm. and manipulation on the part of the school to force these kids to become kind of workers and what does it mean to say no to efforts like that. But my absolute favorite is I am the cheese. When I teach it, and I teach it in young adult fiction, my students are blown away by this book because you think one thing is happening. And it turns out by the end of the novel, something completely different has been going on, and you only get it in the very last couple of pages. Okay, keep it together. Don't get confused. Don't let those thoughts get in the way. Maybe Amy was right. Maybe my life is a mystery. There's so much about my past that I don't understand. So many locked doors. And it is a, an incredibly difficult, complicated, deeply disturbing story. And when Cormier wrote it, he was a newspaper man for 30 years before he started writing novels. He thought he was writing for adults. It never occurred to him. So then a, a marketing genius said, oh, it's so disturbing. Let's market it to teens. <laughs> and, and thus a genre was born. I find the adolescent years intriguing to write about. Because you've got kids with raw emotions, and you put them in perilous situations, and you've got all the stuff of drama. It's tough growing up today. But on the other hand, the emotions of being a teenager are timeless. And maybe that's why I can relate to them in my books, because I try to hit that timeless quality. 
So how do you leverage this into, I don't want to say necessarily a life path, but this becomes part of something that you study? It's kind of a double whammy. The 19th century is really the period when um, literacy rates are changing dramatically on both sides of the Atlantic. So Mm -hmm. I happen to be studying Britain, but you can say the same for, for the U.S. or similar things for the U.S. And ideas of who is educable and who is worthy of an education are also changing. And ideas of childhood itself Mm. are changing. So that, you know, pre-industrial revolution, and I'm speaking very broadly here, children were part of the economic structure and part of the agricultural economy, um, but they worked alongside of their parents. That's very different than factory work. And of course, in factory work, during the early years of the industrial revolution, there was was no regulation. Mm -hmm. So there are many, many children um, there are massive shifts in population, kids, people moving in the cities, but kids working in factories and working under absolutely horrific conditions, and, and lots of kids that were on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when I'm studying Dickens, I see repeated me- mentions of these children who are in harm's way, and they're terribly vulnerable, and no one, it's no one's job. Mm-hmm. to take care of them. So we've got this changing understanding of what it means to be a child. And by the end of the 19th century, children are recognized as a protective class. They're mm. recognized as having different developmental stage and that it's not just the children of people who have money right. that deserve a childhood mm-hmm. <laughs> and that deserve an education. So that's that's wildly different than the start of the, start of the century. And then publishing houses start marketing to to, to those audiences like immediately or immediately is it like- really we're moving from plays and essays and theology in the 18th century um, to the rise of the novel is this an imaginative realm hmm. and that's at the end of the 18th century that the novel comes into its own um, when you're thinking about the 19th century and you're thinking about the rise of the buildings roman like the the novel of coming of age of coming into one's own of, of vocation of finding oneself um all of those sort of buildings roman novels when you think again of of Tabor copperfield of oliver twist of these great dickens novels or when you think about jane eyre right mm, they start mm-hmm. with child protagonists mm. and many of them are orphans yeah. but they were also sort of mapping out what is childhood mm. and what are some of the the vulnerabilities or the state of innocence versus experience. But what, what does it mean to see the world from a child's eyes and how is that different? Now let me take you back. No, I can't go back to school. I'll never go back. I'll run away. Jane, you know what duty is, don't you? Duty is what you have to do even when you don't want to do it. In your heart, you know perfectly well your duty is to prepare yourself to do God's work in the world. Isn't that true? And who can do God's work? An ignorant woman or an educated one? Yes, you know the answer to that. And where can you get an education, Jane? At school. Precisely. Have you noticed a difference between how we're working through children's lives, through literature? Like, are we taking on more intense subject matter? Is the Babysitter's Club more radical than what we give it credit for? There has always been um, edgy, confrontational, complicated strand to children's literature and young adult literature, but they weren't necessarily the conventional reads, Mm. and they weren't necessarily what everybody else was reading, but they were there. And that goes with the back to this idea of the fictional frame. Mm -hmm. So if you have this world building and it corresponds in some way, shape, or form to the here and now, you can see then how they don't have free choice. 
and not all options are available to them. And some characters have fewer options than others. And when you start to recognize that, it's quite illuminating Mm -hmm. for power dynamics and for issues of political agency and and social justice. But there there have been kind of quietly radical ideas available. Robert Cormier is a great example of that Mm -hmm. since the very beginning of young adult fiction. And even when you think I'm thinking about my what my mom was reading when my mom was young. Um, So she was reading Cherry Ames books. But as a cultural historian looking at those books, you can absolutely see kind of a loosening of prescriptive gender roles during World War II and then a reapplication mm-hmm. of very straightened normative middle class values um, being applied to women whether they wanted it or not. I would say that more recently there's been much more willingness to engage with, with queer issues, absolutely, mm-hmm. with diversity in terms of sexualities, um, much less kind of, I think Judy Bloom is a great example of sexual content that wasn't all that sexual when you look back on it, Mm -hmm. but did have female sexual desire, which is still not really addressed from the teen crowd, right? Or really in the adult crowd. Yeah, yeah. As a 12-year-old, I was obsessed by the idea of growing breasts and getting my period, but there was no place that I could read about it. And when I started to write, I was determined to be honest. It's your mom. I have a question about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to PopQuestPod on any one of those and follow. If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at PopQ Podcast, or you can get us directly at PopQ at Drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. What does excite you about children's literature now? I do think that you can have experiences through young adult fiction that you would not have had even 15 years ago. Mm. Um, Some of that is through the work of of editors um, and sort of changing imprints and what Mm. people are willing to publish. I, I think that that's really been fabulous. And that if you're seeking out books... You can get books from a lot of different perspectives Mm. and that that's really incredibly valuable. Um, And if we work from that, from picture books up to young adult fiction, you can really allow kids to think for themselves from a very early age about all kinds of issues, Mm. class, gender, sexuality, race, history, economics, you name it. And it's not up to me to say what they should think, but I want them to to have choices in perspective and I think that children's literature really does provide that. Yeah. And I think that there is at least in in the popular sphere more urgency and more people kind of making demands from the industry, readers and people on Twitter and people like using social media to bolster and say like this is what we want as consumers. Yes, absolutely. And the argument 
the false argument that the vast majority of readers don't want to buy diverse books has been proven false over and Mm -hmm. over and over again. (laughs) Same thing with film and television. Same thing with film and television, but also the the front runner for all of this was music. Mm. So the argument was always, you can't tell me that people don't want to have access to popular culture that is incredibly diverse and representative of the kind of really culturally rich environment which modern America is because people will will listen to all kinds of music and mm-hmm. enjoy it and engage with it on a thoughtful level. Why not film? Why not TV? Why not books? I also think that we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> For example, we don't realize um, the dearth of translations. Hmm. English, by far, is the language most translated from globally in terms of children's publishing and least translated into. So we export all these different narratives and we kind of export a whitewashed version of what childhood is globally. Mm-hmm. And we don't even recognize that we don't have it. We don't ask. Please, sir. I want some more. What? What? Ask for more? When we think about books, we think about the imaginative possibilities. But with film, they're on screen. So I guess for somebody who is invested in children's literature and reading and opening up children's worldviews, do you think adaptations add to the excitement to the narrative, perhaps drive people to novels? Or do you think that maybe they should just go away? Oh, I don't think they should go away. Okay. Yeah. Maybe somewhere in the middle? Somewhere in the middle, but I also think it's how well it's been adapted and what kind of a job they've done. And whether it gets gets people really thinking about, you know, that world that's been created filmically, that's great. Raise your words, not your voice. It is rain that makes the flowers grow, not thunder. And I don't think that's completely dissimilar from interpretations of literature, though there's a different kind of engagement with the visual text. Um, I think it's more work Mm -hmm. to read a book. But I think plenty plenty of readers can go back and forth between these different media without any problem whatsoever and really, really enjoy the experience. Mm. Um, I would say another thing that we haven't talked about has been audiobooks. It used to be sort of pejorative if you were using audiobooks and not so at all anymore. We took a time wrinkle as well as a space wrinkle. It's very easy to do if you just know how. Just relax and don't worry over things that needn't trouble you. Um, And I would also say graphic novels. The graphic text now for middle readers for young adults, it's it's a complete win, 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 win. Mm. They are so complicated, so artistically rich. Um, narratively, there's kind of a brevity, but that is kind of like poetry, where you have that combination of different linguistic values um, as well as this like real in- intensity um, on, in terms of visual presentation of information. And if it gets people to, to get engaged in the narrative, I'm all for it. What do you foresee as next 
for children's lit? I see a lot of self-publishing. That's a current trend anyway. So how do you make it in the publishing world when, you know, the publishing world has gone through such seismic shifts? And I think that you need both self-publishing um, and you also need to recognize sort of similar to music, I'm going back to the music frame of reference, that instead of being signed to a label, you tour mm. and you make your money that way. Um, independent bookstores are being kept alive in part because of children's literature and because parents are still willing, grandparents, others are still want, willing to buy books, physical mm. books for their kids. They want the books in the hands and away from the screens, right? Mm. Um, and they're willing to take their kids to an independent bookstore to meet the author. And to listen to what the author has to say. So yeah, I see. I see the future is anything and everything, but maybe <laughs> um, industry changes in the industry itself. So it's less about content and more about how is that structured and how to how do readers find it and what do readers do when they find a really great author that they want to support. Mm. Um, sure, they're going to buy the book, but they should also be asking for for library copies, and they should be asking for their library to get um, read electronic access to multiple copies the other sort of flip side to that would be the we need diverse books hmm. campaigns and the we need diverse books has been around for a long time now um, but has only recently I would say made great impact on American and British publishing to change the statistic about the number of books that feature protagonists of color and that support the writing of writers for children and young adults who are of, of color. Words and language. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. But yeah, I think I think that reading is an inherently political act and that we should be encouraging everyone to read broadly and independently and not just what's on their feed. I mean, it's one, empowering for yourself. Two, Absolutely. you're building empathy through taking on other people's perspectives and narrations, but also like exchanging ideas and emotions with other people to form like a better sense of community and just and the book itself changes yeah the book changes the book is completely different if you read it at 10 than if you read it at 25 than if you read it at 40 mm -hmm. it's a different book a book lets you zoom through time and space but don't bother packing you can stay in one place when you're talking about books with other people there are there are differences in the way that they're interpreted and also what people see as being most valuable and most pertinent and most thought-provoking, much less the consequences of those ideas. So when you start to have those conversations, it really is just so inspiring. It mm -hmm. can be. Well, Dee, thanks so much for hanging out. There's so much. There's so much. There really is so much. Thank you. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Cantoric with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We talking about practice, man.